0: This morning's sermon text is coming from Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are truth and just for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cry out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne. Saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you, his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seems to be the voice of a great multitude, like a roar of many waters, and like a sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the Mary of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then he fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy.
1: It has uh, long been the practice of many people to um, kind of want to know what the future is. You know, they seek uh, palm readers and fortune tellers and reading tarot cards. It has always interested people to know what might come around the corner. Uh, For an economic gain, to know where the markets are going or how the markets are going to go or what business to get into. Uh, For other people, it's to know about personal life. Should I marry this person or that person? And and, and there's this always been an interest in trying to discern what's in the future. You have people like Nostradamus and other people that were known as at least uh, as people who could kind of read the times ahead. And of course, people have always wanted to know that because then you make decisions and you, you try to change your life so as to profit from that knowledge or, or perhaps to avoid the danger that you found out that the future would hold. So people have long done that. Now, the scripture doesn't encourage that in any way, shape or form. Scripture encourages us to look to God who is sovereign over all things. But in the mercy of God, he does often reveal things to his people. He does share with us, in fact, what is to be in some context, particularly our passage today in Revelation 19. He's revealing to us of what will be on that final day. Uh, the, it's called a salvation song. It's really the third and final salvation song in the book of Revelation. And in this song, a salvation song, it's really kind of celebrating God and his salvation and redemption among the people. Uh, You'll see the song's really broken down into two parts. One, we're celebrating God that he's going to bring judgment on the wickedness of this world. As Ray prayed, kind of the chaos or the wilderness in which we live. The destruction, the disorder, the shame, the struggle. Uh, But the second part is we're celebrating God for the complete salvation he brings. And it's pictured in a marriage supper. So here we have the kind of the final part of the Dining with Jesus series, where again we're gathered around a table. And and, and again we're celebrating with food and wine. uh, But it's going to be a final feast for us here. But he lets us peer into heaven. He draws John. So, you know, revelation. It is the revelation of Jesus to John. So it's being revealed so that we might know what is ahead so as to change our life now. In other words, for you to hear this and do nothing with it would be absolutely eternally foolish. But to hear this and say, oh... This is what will be, and then we make the. It's the mercy of God that we make these course changes now. Um, So we'll look at the two parts: this, the rejoicing in heaven over God bringing judgment and the rejoicing in heaven over God completing salvation. And then he gives us a warning at the end. So kind of two parts of this. Look with me at one to five. We'll look at this idea of judgment. After this, John says, after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God. All you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Uh, So here's what we have. You have this voice, really just a multitude of voices, all giving praise to God, all shouting hallelujah, which is a a Hebrew word. It's it's plural. It's saying all of us praise Yahweh. So y'all praise Yahweh is what it's saying, plural, calling us all together. And praise and and John tells us why we are to praise God. Because he has salvation, he has glory, and he has power. He has mercy in saving a people from the wilderness. He has glory in his righteous judgments of what we're gonna see. And he has power in his reign. Nothing could stop the hand of God. We even sang it earlier. So they're praising him for this, for this power and this judgment. Now you notice. It's after this. John says, after this. After what? Well, if you were to read 17 and 18, you would see in great detail God bringing judgment to this great prostitute or also known as Babylon. In fact, in 17.1, it says, "'Come, I will show you the judgment "'of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters.'" So in 17 and 18, God is bringing judgment in detail over this great prostitute. Now, who's the great prostitute? Who's Babylon? Well, it's really a picture, it's an image. It's an image of, of the wickedness of men apart from God. It's the, it's the evilness and the corruption of world systems, politics, religion, economics, culture. It's kind of like the summing up of these are the kingdoms of men. No doubt there's darkness in there, but darkness working its way through humanity in opposition to God. It's the, as in 18, it's the pride of men. It's the arrogance. It's the oppression of men. Uh, We saw this in chapter 3. We've talked about this before. Uh, In man's desire to be equal to, above God, we have brought a curse on this world. We see it in the disorder, the disease, even the death that we see. Uh, We see the brokenness in our own image-bearing capacity. Uh, We are cruel, harsh, we're blame-shifting, constantly self-promoting. This is what God's bringing judgment on. He's going to bring judgment on the wickedness of this world. Not just the wickedness of this world. He's also bringing judgment on the world as it's persecuted the saints. You think about throughout the history of the church and the saints who have suffered. We haven't suffered so greatly in our generation in this place. But please make no mistake about it. There are many, many, many who have and and who will and who are. And I want you to remember that it was back in chapter 6 that we read about the saints who were suffering. They were praying. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? So this is what God is doing. He's avenging the wickedness of this world, but also those who have brought suffering to his people. He will avenge He will make right. And I want you to see that this is a complete and utter destruction of evil. You see that in the smoke rising up forever. In other words, it is eternal and it is complete. And I'll tell you, what the saints do is they rejoice. You see that? Amen. Hallelujah. So these 24 elders, uh, that's probably representing all of redeemed humanity. You have the 12 tribes of Israel. You have the 12 apostles of Jesus together, 12 and 12, 24 elders. It's kind of representing all of humanity, saying, amen, we agree with your judgment on the world. We agree with it. Amen. Praise you for that. And the four living creatures, probably a a representation, a summation of all the cherubim, the angelic hosts who have been created to do God's will. They, too, agree with what God's doing in his bringing judgment to the world. So we're given a snapshot. You're peering into heaven right now that on that final day when God brings about that full destruction on this world and its evil and all the human institutions that have lived in opposition to God. All of heaven will say, Amen. Hallelujah. We agree. Absolutely. And then notice in verse 5, there's that lone voice. It's unnamed. Perhaps it's the Lord Jesus who calls all the servants, those who fear, to praise God and to give him glory. All of those who fear. So, friends, you're given this opportunity to see all, all wrongs will be made right. All wrongs that you faced will be made right. So so what do we do with this? What do we do with this kind of knowledge of how things will finalize out? What do we do with it? Well, friends, it strengthens us to endure well in the face of evil. It does strengthen us. I mean, what does the world do with the chaos of our world? What What does the common person do? How, how do they deal with all the evil and the brokenness and the disorder and the disease and the death, death, death? It's just people die. It, it just what do they do with it? Eugene Peterson, a recently deceased but an author, a Christian author, he, he says there's two things that we do. One is moral optimism. He says it this way. The world's alternative to salvation is optimism. Optimism is a a way of staying useful and being hopeful without having recourse to God. It requires, of course, a much reduced perception of the catastrophe as if it's going to mean credibility. He says there's two things. There's the moral optimist. The moral optimist is always thinking that, no, we're getting better. We're going to do better. We're going to to add. We're going to save the whales. We're going to do these different things, and it's going to make our world a better place. It's that we're optimistic in our moral capacities to actually try to undo the wickedness and the brokenness of this world. In fact, I was leaving the hospital with Carol a few days ago, visiting a friend who was in a bad way, and I was on the elevator going down, and uh, a guy there said, well, how you doing? And I thought I'd be honest with him. I said, yeah, not that well. He goes, you know what? Just think positive. You know what I thought? What's that going to do? Well, what's it going to do? Really? But, but, but this, is what, this is what our culture teaches us. Just be positive. Is that going to change anything? Now, I recognize the role of attitude in the lives of the Christian, I, I get that. But but this moral optimism, that somehow we're gonna be able to add a lot of good moral actions onto one side of the scale to try to outweigh the destructive capacity of wickedness and opposition to God. There is no way. History does not support us in this position at all. Generation after generation, the, the, after World War I, The word in Europe was never again. It'll never happen again. We have learned. We're going to now change. How many years before World War II? We don't have the moral capacity. What's going to do? De- who's going to deal with that out there? Maybe there's technological optimism, uh, scientific discoveries, and medical advancements. Now we have AI. Hey, these things are going to come to bear, and they're going to bring a change. We're going to finally tilt the scales against wickedness and catastrophe. No way. Now we're even worried about AI overtaking us. I mean, folks, what do we do? What do we do? We have hope here uh, to endure the struggles and the trials of our life that God will bring about judgment. And his judgment is going to be like a Perry Mason courtroom scene or whatever the latest version of it is where you know, a case is presented and evidence is offered and, and witnesses take the stand. No, no, no. There's no argument, counter-argument. God knows it all. His, his judgments are just and fair. He renders a verdict. There's no debate. There's no appeal. There's no appellate court with God. He knows all. And we need him to bring judgment. Do you realize that in the judgment of the world, you will shout hallelujah. It will be an eternal judgment. It will be a complete judgment. You know, some of us get a little squeamish on this because we think, oh, I, I don't know. It's like, God, you it seems a little heavy handed. You know, God, can't you know, give him a little bit of a break? They're crying uncle. You know, don't you let him up. You don't kick a guy when he, I, I don't think we begin to understand the nature of wickedness and the holiness of God. You know, I think our kids do. I've pointed out to you before, you know, that children understand judgment sometimes better than we do. You know, reading to my children, Snow White, when the wicked queen finally gets her due, she tries to kill the dwarves and the lightning strikes the cliff and she gets crushed under all the rubble. The kids aren't saying, oh, that's so bad. She didn't deserve that. Or scar and lion can Gets devoured by the hyenas. Nobody's pulling for scar. They understand this is who they are. This is righteous. It's right. It's a good judgment. And they shout hallelujah. This helps us understand when we are facing evil, that we can remain fixed and firm and steadfast. We don't have to revile when reviled. We can entrust ourselves to God. This is why Paul writes in Romans, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. It's written, vengeance is mine. I'll repay, says the Lord. And Paul writes to Timothy, who is facing some real consternation in the church at Ephesus. He says, a good servant. He says, be a good servant. The servant of the Lord is one who is not quarrelsome, is kind to everyone, and he patiently endures evil, the evil that's often brought against you. We can endure entrusting ourselves to God. So when you read Revelation 19, you know judgments are going to come. You know wrongs will be righted. We don't have to then take up in ourselves the reviling against those who have reviled us. But not just that. It doesn't just strengthen us to endure evil. And you may be in a spot, a spot right now where you, you want to make your case known. And, and and there is a place to speak the truth in in context of difficulties and quarrels. But you know what I mean. It, it's wanting a pound of flesh. We can patiently endure. But, but secondly, we can be humble too. It does humble us to know the Christian here. If you're if you're a Christian and you're trusting in Jesus Christ alone to save you. You don't disparage the world. You don't discredit the world. You don't say, you know what? They made their bed. Let them go lay in it or lie in it. I've never got that straight in English. But but just let them endure it. You know, th- th- it's their issue. We kind of have a certain smugness about us. We're kind of condescending sometimes to the world. Look, they're doing the same thing over and over. Why won't they learn? We don't want to take that posture because we're part of Babylon. We've listened to the seductive voice of the, pro- of the prostitute. We've given way. And by God's grace, you have been saved. You've been delivered by him opening your eyes to his glory and your sin. And you found in him salvation and forgiveness. We are humble. We grieve. We grieve. But it, but it also... It also, it also calls us to worship, doesn't it? When, when you think about that day, you know, it, it is a command. Hallelujah is a command to worship. This idea of when he says, all of you, great and small, rich and poor, educated, uneducated, known and unknown. Do you see that there's no distinction? We all are called to worship God. And so we're reminded, even now, this is why we gather as a church. We are an outpost of heaven in the midst of catastrophe. It's us coming together, not being lured by the promises of the world and the the values of the world. We come together each week. We're reminding ourselves of the truth of a sovereign God. We're going to rest. We're going to endure patiently. We're going to enjoy God and each other. You know, Notice what he says, though. Those who fear God. Do you fear God? If you fear God, you will not fear man. And you will not fear this world. Now, I know it's not a black and white. There's usually, it's a continuum. But we're called to grow in our fear of God. In fact, in Deuteronomy, we read, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. It's interesting, the word fear, that reverent affection, it's not fright, it's not uncertainty. I don't know, how, wow, I don't know what he's going to do with me. You know, that, that's a different, no, fear in God is a reverent affection. And notice he says, he says that you shall serve him. That word can be translated worship. So fear and worship go together. You tend to worship what you fear. Maybe, maybe, maybe you fear losing something. It gets your time, it gets your attention, it gets your trust, it gets everything you have. The, we grow in fear of God, and we're going to grow in worship of him, and we won't fear anything else. So folks, we see in these first five verses that all of heaven rejoices as God brings judgment upon wickedness, and it allows us now to endure evil. It allows us now to be humbled. It allows us now to worship. And to come, week after week, gathered together with the other participants of what's going to be. And we, we get our minds righted. But, but secondly, look with me at the, at the next part of the song, where they're rejoicing over salvation. Look with me at um, 6 to 8. He says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linens, bright and pure, for the fine linens is the righteous deeds of the saints. So what we hear, we have another chorus starting up, probably the redeemed. If the first is kind of the angelic, this may be just the redeemed community. And what they're doing is they're worshiping God. There's nothing calm or quiet about it, right? You see the similes, three of them. It's like a multitude, thousands and thousands and thousands shouting forth. It's like the aurora of rushing waters if you've ever been near a, a, raging, a raging stream or being by the ocean, the crashing of the waves. It, it's so loud. Or, or the pearls of thunder if you've ever gone hiking and a storm just kind of comes upon you quickly. Sometimes, particularly if you're in the mountains and Paranah hiking in Western North Carolina. And, And it was right on us. It was so loud. It was as if the ground was shaking. This is kind of giving us a picture of the redeemed community thanking God and praising God. For his salvation. And notice what John tells us. It's because the Lord God Almighty reigns. He reigns. So we are praising God for his reigning. Now listen, friends, he, nine times in Revelation, we already see that he reigns. He's reigning right now. There's nothing that can stay his hand. All things are moving in the direction and and toward the end that he has designed but this is a little different Uh, the the verbal tense indicates the beginning of a reign what they're doing is they see that now that darkness has been crushed sin and wickedness has been destroyed now his universal and his visible reign begins in other words as it has always been in heaven so now the catastrophe of our world has now been changed now his will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. It is going to be a sight to see. All of heaven, again, back to Eden, all of heaven, all of earth, joyfully submitting to God as our Father, worshiping and enjoying him forever. That's what they're screaming. That's what they're they're excited about. That's what we have to look forward to, that one day the brokenness of this world will be mended. Humpty Dumpty might not be able to be put back together. He will be mend this world and make it new, completely new. And they worship him. And that day is coupled with the marriage supper, this feast. The marriage of the lamb has come. Uh, This is incredible. Think about it. In Scripture, marriage is often used as a way of expressing God's relationship to us. You see, in the Old Testament, the marriage between God and Israel, when Israel failed, he even called her a prostitute she had whored after other men and not followed God, not worshiped God. In the New Testament, you see the relationship between Jesus and his church is in the context of marriage. This makes sense, right? I mean, the whole Bible begins with a marriage. That's the first thing we see, man, woman, create, boom, they're married. We see marriage as a marker of God's relationship with the people of the Old Testament. Marriage is a marker of Christ leading the church. And here we find marriage in the last few chapters of the Bible. God wants us to understand his love for us as that of a groom to a bride. That's when we're joined together with him. It's an incredible scene. It says that she made herself ready. See, in a Jewish context, a marriage would begin by betrothal. A man would betroth himself. He would commit. It was so binding that it took a divorce to to separate it. And then there would be a period of time. And then the man would pay a dowry for the woman, for his bride. And then and then a feast and a wedding would occur, and the marriage would be consummated. What we're seeing here is the betrothal has already happened. God has called us out of darkness. The dowry has been paid. The blood of Jesus has been shed to reconcile and to clean us from our sin and shame. And now this is a picture of that final day when we, the church, the bride, come together and are made one with Christ forever. It's an incredible, I mean, just no more weeping, no more crying, no more mourning, no more death. The old order has passed away. It's all been made new. This is what we're rejoicing. This is what we're longing for. But notice it says, she made herself ready. And then what do we, what do we do with this? It's, it says, if you look, it says, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. We want to be prepared for this day. But when you read that, it it seems to almost sound a little bit like, Hey, God's done his part. Now you got to get yourself ready. You have to clothe yourself with these righteous deeds. And you, you know, he brought this, you brought this. And it kind of creates this almost, okay, what do I need to do to make sure that I'm ready? I don't want to not be ready. And I think that would be a total misread of what's happening here. Notice the passive voice when he says, It has been granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen. God's grace is giving her the linens. God's grace is saving her, the bride, us. God's grace is first in giving these linen, these wedding garments to us. He has moved first, unilaterally. Our righteousness doesn't make us acceptable to God. God's choice of us makes us acceptable. And then he gives these garments. Now, clearly, you see the responsibility. The woman is to get herself ready, but it's with the grace of God. So she does. We are called to ready ourselves by doing these righteous deeds. But our righteous deeds are not to make us acceptable, it's to display that God has granted to us the grace. It's by his breath that you're living, it's by his gifts that you're serving. He gives you the time. and oh, we see this in Ephesians chapter two when, when Paul says that you are God's creation or you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for you to do. He prepared the good works that you're readying yourself with. Do you see the, do you see the delicate tension here? We don't want to make these enemies. We don't want to make the grace of God and the fruitfulness of men and women at odds. One follows the other. And You see the same tension when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. He says uh, in 421 that you're to put off the old man and its old ways. And you're to put on the new man being renewed by the power of the spirit. He says the same thing to the Philippian church. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you to do and will according to his good pleasure. Do you see God? Paul says it about his own ministry in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. He says, I worked harder than any of them, and yet it was the grace of God at work within me. So, so there's a delicate tension here that we say, that we are to ready ourselves, but it's with the grace that he gives to us. Folks, when you consider this song of salvation, do you not want to give thanks to God who reigns? He does reign. He will reign in visible and universal fashion on the final day, but he's reigning now. Give him thanks for that. We can see that his reign is moving to this absolute universal peace. Shalom. No more death, mourning, crying, or pain. You may be in a spot right now where life is very difficult and very hard. And it's hard to see God reigning when we're suffering. Uh, but, but God's purposes oftentimes are, are quite mysterious. They're difficult to understand. But this is where I call you to faith. I'm going to rest. And as Ray prayed, we believe not just in his sovereignty, but in his good sovereignty that even in the midst of these crises, God, how are you refining me? How are you changing me? How are you showing things to me that I couldn't understand apart from this trial? It takes faith. It also takes the brothers and sisters to come around and remind you of this. But not just considering the rejoicing that comes from reigning, considering how ready are you right now? How, How ready are you? How prepared? If the bride is to make herself ready, What do we need to do to be ready? Now, I don't want to create some uh, confusion in your mind. I'm not a Christian perfectionist. I, I don't think that by the Spirit we can somehow kind of incrementally move into a position where we don't sin anymore. Paul says to us in Romans 7, he says, I do that which I don't want to do. We can all affirm that. And I don't do that which I really want to do. We can all affirm that. He says, who will deliver me from this body of death? So there's a tension. Now, for the Christian here, uh, when I wasn't a Christian, I didn't have a lot of tension. I maybe had regret in a horizontal way, but I didn't have any tension. But now I've got tension because I'm often doing things I really don't want to do, and I don't do those things that I know the Spirit's encouraging me to do. There's a tension that exists within the Christian. It's a tension that leads us to repentance and faith. So, so how ready are we? Are we moving forward incrementally in holiness? Are we pursuing God? I, I mean, are, are we walking out faithfulness? Are we persevering in the difficulties and struggles that we're having? Are we seeking God for the grace that we need so that we can walk in a way that we ought? Are we testing ourselves to see if we're in the faith? Now, Paul encourages that in 2 Corinthians 13.5. He says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Unless, um, unless of course you fail the test, there is there isn't. I'm not encouraging, kind of creating a, a false discomfort. I just think it's worthwhile sometimes to see what is the fruit being born in my life, and am I ready? There's a good there's value in some introspection in our lives. So when we when we hear this song, let's consider our readiness. Are you ready? Uh, but but also, I, I want you to consider not just, yeah, well, your readiness, but I also want you to consider how we're helping one another. You see here in the text that salvation is pictured as a communal event. In other words, salvation, you know, we live in an age where it's my spiritual growth. It's my personal journey. It's Jesus and me. It's, I will listen to these podcasts and and I have these internet preachers, uh, but it's really about me and Jesus, and it's kind of a privatized affair. But you see, he pictures salvation in the context of a family meal. And and so families get together. There's a a communal aspect about how we're drawn into the faith through the body of Christ, through the church, and how we grow up in the faith. Do Do you appreciate the communal nature of your faith? Are you thankful for it? Or do you try to do things on your own, kind of keeping your life and all the events and the struggles real close to the vest so that nobody really knows? It's it's not the way God has designed his church to be. Even John Calvin, even John Calvin said that the church is the mother of salvation. Now, that almost sounds Roman Catholic in a lot of ways. But what he meant by it was that the heralding of the gospel through the church gives life, and then they grow up. In fact, let me read to you from the Institutes. He said, I shall start then with the church into whose bosom God is pleased to gather his sons, not only that they may be nourished by her help and ministry as long as they're infants and children, but also that they may be guided by her motherly care until they mature and at last reach the goal of faith so that those to whom he is father The church may also be mother. And this was so that not only under the law, but also after Christ's coming, as Paul testifies, when he teaches that we are children of the new and heavenly Jerusalem. So he's saying that the church is going to be instrumental. Your relationships here, the regular preaching, the interaction, the Bible studies, the singing, all these things aren't just drawing you from infancy to adulthood, but it's preparing you to see them. And you see that? Now the church is messy. Our family meals were always messy took us years to get them to even use utensils. I mean, it's a messy, messy deal. We didn't even try with napkins. It just was no hope. It's messy, the the way we are, our our incremental sanctification. It's worked out in the context of a community. Friends, but I want you to see that this salvation we'll share is with one another. It's not individualized. So we see here two things. We'll rejoice over the judgment and will rejoice over the salvation of God. But notice the last warning. Look with me at nine and 10. In nine and 10 he says, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. He says, worship God. Okay, let me just briefly, I I give you a take on this. First off, we're thankful that the angel said, write it down. Because if you didn't write it down, we wouldn't profit by it right now. It's been written down for us. So the intention is that you profit. It's a beatitude, you see. It's the fourth one out of seven. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, blessed means holy, satisfied, uh, grateful, uh, peaceful. So blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, there's this the word for invite means to call. Have you been called to the marriage supper? Have you heard God call you? Have you responded? How have you responded? Have you responded by faith? Remember, those called, Paul tells us, Paul says in Romans 8, those predestined have been called, those called have been justified, those justified have been glorified. The people that are at this wedding feast are the ones who have been called and who have responded to the call of God. Have you responded? Uh, Do you trust in Jesus Christ? Uh, Do you look to God as a father because Christ has come to deliver you? Uh, What I mean by faith is a trust. You're entrusting the care of your soul, not to the righteous deeds that you've been able to produce or the moral achievements that you've made or the actions of morality or Or any other kind of good work that you've done. Those are are well and good and appropriate in the life of the believer. They just don't have any foundation to them to save. They're more a result of us being saved or should be. So are you clothed? Are you ready? Because that's what he's saying. Only those who have been called are blessed. And so it's, it's a good, have we been called? Have we responded? And if we have, then we can rejoice and we can give thanks. And that's what John was doing. But notice what John did. He worships the angel and the angel corrects him. Don't do that. He says, worship God. Well, what's happening here? Well, I don't, I don't really know. We're not told. It, it, it's confusing. What's John doing? John may be actually just showing us the temptation of what life is like out there until this day comes. You'll note that in his first letter to the church, when he writes the church in 1 John, the very last line of all of his writing, he says, dear children, keep yourself free from idols. Maybe he knew that that unique susceptibility that we have, that even though saved, we can get distracted from God. He says, worship God. All the shiny trinkets out there, when you're young, it's sex, it's, it's progress and business, it's wealth, it's security. When you're older, it's health, it's relationships. It's, whatever those shiny objects that you fear most losing, or you fear that you need to have to be happy, they are distracting to us, and we can bow down to a lot of things. He says, worship God. Repent as you're distracted. We all are. You know, a few years ago, I gave you this quote from David, um, uh, David Foster Wallace, uh, American author, novelist. Uh, he writes this, because there's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. He's not writing as a Christian. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships, The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, you'll never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age starts showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths and proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables. It's the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in our daily consciences. That's what I'm doing right now. It's the temptation. We're called to worship God. So, friends, we have peered into heaven this morning. We've looked into heaven. This is a final day. We will be singing about the ultimate destruction. What has taken place It's evil and wicked? He will make all things come undone. And yet, we'll be then wed with Christ in union, the church with its Messiah. And so these are the days that we worship God. We gather together. We fight for that absolute singular focus on God we help each other do this let's take a moment now and ask God to give us the grace to walk in light of these words not just for ourselves but that we're responsible to help others in this pilgrimage and then I'll pray for us in a moment